So tonight's talk is entitled Resolutions of the Heart. But first I want to honor a very difficult day that you must have all had. I know how difficult it is that first day for both new people and experienced students as well. Sometimes it feels like you're adding to your problems rather than extracting yourself from them. (laughs) But in fact, the opposite is true. And to have some degree of faith and wholehearted commitment to going through these very difficult first couple of days on a retreat. And I think for all of you, regardless of your level of experience, you'll get a feeling for how this retreat allows a certain degree and depth of learning to take place, which may be unparalleled in your life. So tonight I'd like to speak about the new year and what we're going to be carrying into the new year from the 20th century into the 21st. I'm not much for New Year's resolutions. I find myself breaking them almost immediately. And I often wonder why I don't have the discipline to carry myself through an action to what I feel so committed to in spirit. And I think it's because I, I don't feel the urgency of the problem to the depth of which I need to feel it in order to actually do the resolution. But I do think this period of time is a very reflective period. And we need to take stock of our life and where we're going. And I can see this period of time as we go through the next few days as being not only a personal reflection but a universal one as well. Where is, where is humanity going? You know, for the first time in your life, on January 1st, you will know the first two digits of the date of your death. Now you know when you were born, so we've got six out of the eight. That's what I mean about being a reflective time. This is a one-way road we're on. And for us to be able to take it seriously at the same time that we enjoy the beauty of the surround seems to me extremely important. And this particular New Year's brings forth that sense of sincerity and serenity. And perhaps what it can do is open the door individually for us to allow us to begin to feel what our life is about and where it's going.
one of the places to start is at our own death because it's so strongly denied. The Buddha said, people don't know that they're going to end or they wouldn't quarrel. I had a hospice nurse once tell me, she said she couldn't go to bed angry at her husband because she realized there wasn't time to hold that resentment. When you're around the subject of death and dying, it inevitably breeds that kind of urgency, that sort of commitment to the immediate moment. And so if it's helpful to reflect upon your degree or lack of health, And just getting a sense. I know when I was a young boy, I used to calculate how old I would be when, I, when the century turned. And thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I'll be that old. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's a very interesting time. So much projection has gone into these moments. So let us look here for a moment, sincerely and seriously, at the state of our humanity. You know, if we reflect upon what the last thousand years has brought forth to this life, it's an enormous change. A thousand years ago, there were no African Americans or European set foot on this continent. Europe was in the middle of the feudal system. And enormous advances in technology, medicine, knowledge, science have occurred over the thousand years, undoubtedly. Yet, In the last 50 years, since World War II, 120 million people have died in war. It seems we have less of a Y2K technological problem and more of a Y2K humanity problem. So where are we going? What are we going to bring forth into this next century? What are we going to what are we going to feel in our hearts is the urgency that we need to walk through this time door? What will we carry with us? Will we carry the violence? And many of us can be very self-righteous in that violence and say, I'm not going to do that. Those of you who watched the news in the last month saw Seattle in the midst of a flurry. We were all, I, was, I lived there, so I'm very aware of what took place. And all the, the demonstrators, most of them, the vast majority of them were very sincere and had uh, very important causes to be demonstrating about in terms of the World Trade Organization. And then a handful of people who were there to disrupt did so. 
coloring the whole occasion with that kind of conflict. And as I was watching it, I was reflecting on the fact that 99% of those demonstrators had no desire at all to create that kind of havoc. And yet there it was. And that a good-hearted approach to life is not enough to keep violence from occurring. Well, good intentions are not enough. They require something else. I had this gnawing problem of the kind of violence and conflict and struggle within myself, feeling that it was those very tendencies within me, multiplied by five billion, that created the state of conflict and horror in the world. And I was a monk at the time, and I was deliberately dwelling or reflecting upon that particular aspect of my mind when there was a Thai monk who came to our monastery, a newly ordained Thai monk, and in Thailand people ordained for short periods of time for respect within the culture. And this particular Thai monk had something against Westerners, in particular me, and made life hell for me by doing things like I would be walking with my bowl and after I'd gotten the food he would come by and he'd take the bowl and rip it out of my hands and it would tumble, all the food would fall out. Or he would come up behind me and knock me like that and I would throw food on other people and it was, it was awful. And there I was in the midst of this kind of reflection when the very turmoil was happening outside. To be honest, I wanted to kill him. I, was ju- I would just fume. All, it was, my mind was obsessed with this particular uh, relationship, and I hadn't spoken a word to him. I really wanted to go into the forests and just have a fight. I wanted to do that as a monk because it happened day after day after day and you think you can outweigh them and then it happens the day after day <laughs> you try everything you rally every one of your strategies except dropping, dropping the struggle finally out of desperation just to tell you what I did I went and told Ajahn Buddhadasa who was the abbot of the monastery and I said this is what's going on and he called the monk over and said you know you can't do that and the man left because he had lost face with the abbot but it was it's interesting because it catches us in a kind of bind in which we feel trapped completely lost in the turmoil of the anger and the angst and the frustration and the stress and the struggle and the conflict never equating that struggle with the Buddha's teaching, but thinking it's a problem out there that I have to solve. And oftentimes, and this talk certainly acknowledges this, the best strategy is effective communication or telling your ajahn. 
but to own and to take responsibility for that inward struggle as a statement of what is going on within me. Because unfortunately, what we have learned to do with our inward violence, with our inward conflict, and let it be known that the Buddha's teaching is all about this. When the Buddha was talking about suffering and disappointment and unsatisfactoriness, he was pointing to the rub of life, to the friction, to the struggle, to the tension that we have. And at some point, almost out of desperation, we see that we can't point fingers any longer. And we come to a retreat or we do something which allows us to begin to acknowledge and work with that very sense of struggle inwardly. It doesn't mean that life doesn't keep presenting those problems to us. As a matter of fact, next door to me, where I live in Seattle, our neighbor bought, has bought, purchased two yapping dogs. <laughs> they bark all day long. And they feed off of each other's barking. <laughs> and we've tried everything on that. Talking to the neighbors, yelling at the dogs. I don't know what to do. But I do know that my problem, my anger, rests with my responsibility. It's me. I have to take care of that inward world. And so we are here. We are here to take care of our inward worlds. It is so difficult because the first thing we want to do is to skip the stone on the rock. Instead of having this stone plummet into the water, we want to skip it. We want to diffuse the anger and point to someone else, don't we? I'm angry because that person's socks are white. I don't like white socks. Or he coughs, or she sneezes, or she moves. She makes noise when she comes into it. My roommate leaves the light on, doesn't, on and on. It doesn't mean that there isn't a problem there that needs effective communication. But that is beside the point of us taking responsibility for our inward feelings and emotions. They are not caused from external factors. They are caused from internal factors. You do not make me angry. Anger arises within me because I am unwilling to adjust to the situation. And that's an important understanding, even in these first few days, when our legs hurt and when there is a sense of drowsiness and slumber and what am I doing here and all of that. Those are the struggles of the mind. Those are the very ones that we should be working with, should be owning, should be taking responsibility for, should be feeling through the course of this day, should be acknowledging and opening to. Now something that has been very, very important for me to understand is that these facts, the facts of what is happening within us, internally and externally, are friendly. That's not a commonly known truth. 
the fact of you, your death, that you are going to die is a fact, is it not? Please everybody shake your head yes so that I know you. <laughs> we have to acknowledge that one. <laughs> that is a fact. And I have spent some 15 years looking at that fact, working with it so that I find its friendly face. It's not an obviously friendly fact. But I stand here tonight telling you that in fact it is. I had a dying woman who was so full of joy as she was dying that I wanted to learn what it was that kept her buoyant and, and so alive. So I asked her, in my naiveness, why are you so happy while you're dying? And she said, you know, honey, I've had two children die in my arms. I've looked death right in his eyes, and his eyes are kind. You see, that's the acknowledgement that the fact is friendly. That she had seen through the course of experience in her life the truth of death. And so we start moving into this 21st century with an orientation and a perspective and a posture which allows the facts to come in. I'm not going to deflect them anymore. I don't have time, and I hope you don't either. We don't have time to pin the tail of blame on the donkey of the other. It's our ass. I like that. (laughs) So I ask you tonight, in terms of that, do you want to die with your violence? Do you want to die with your anger? Do you want to die with your cynicism, with your bitterness, with your judgment? Because unless we do something, that's the state of our inward affairs. And unless we feel the urgency of putting that down in the 21st century, because life cannot sustain the kind of violence that we have lived now, for the last 2,000 years. Unless we feel that, in fact, ingrained in the very soul of our being, we will die with it. And this retreat, if it means anything, it means taking responsibility for for those facts. Facts are friendly. So what do we do with them? You see, knowing that, somehow if I open to them, they can communicate something to me, that they have something, some information to impart so that I can grow in relationship to them. That's what that means. Denying them or blaming or not taking responsibility is not facing the fact And therefore, I never even recover the fact. I never even see it. 
because I am not owning it as my fault, as my responsibility. I just keep saying it's your fault. It's you. It's them. It's thus. It's the Russians. It's the... (laughs) But now, you see, Christ said something in the Gospel of St. Thomas. He said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you will bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. If we don't own the facts of our life, we will be destroyed. But if we bring forth those facts and observe them, for just what they are. You see, it's getting through to just what they are that all the screams of the mind come from. That is where, that's the problem because we don't believe they're just what they are. We believe that they are statements about who we are and not just a what, they're a who. And to get from the who to the what creates all the screams. That's the reason we're in such turmoil. That's the reason we're in such conflict. So I want to know what to do with these facts. I want to know where to go with them. And if we feel the urgency that I'm trying to impart tonight, I welcome you to hold that same curiosity, that same acquisitiveness. So I look to the Buddha's teaching. And I don't have to go far because in the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest teachings of the Buddha, it says, anger never ceases from anger alone. Now what does that mean, you see? I mean, there's Chechnya and East Timor and Kosovo, and we can see the ethnic hatreds backlash against themselves since time immemorial. How one ethnic group burns down the house of another and on it goes like falling dominoes through time immemorial. And we say, oh, that's what he means. Anger never ceases through anger alone. And I can see that. I can see it in the ethnic and racial reactions and reactivity that sprout forth from anger and anger and anger and anger. But I would like to take that deeper tonight. I'd like to take that saying and move it inside of us. Because with the Buddha, very di- his simple statements often have profound significance, much beyond their face value. So what does that mean? Anger never ceases through anger alone. Let us say that I'm angry, that anger arises in my mind. And that upsets me. I've had a history, my father, mother, brother, sister, in which anger is not something that settles very easily in my consciousness. And therefore I'm reactive when it's there. As a matter of fact, I dislike it. And therefore I am feeding the fire of anger with my own reactive anger. And therefore, anger never ceases through my angry reaction. 
Now that's an interesting one. You see? What about being impatient? Maybe that's your... I'm trying to find your little... We all have them. Perhaps it's impatience. So when patience comes and I... What's it doing here? I want it to leave. What am I doing? But throwing the same fuel on the fire of my impatience. And therefore feeding my, the impatience that arises in my mind with my reactive impatience increases the very fire of impatience itself. Anger never ceases through anger alone. How about judgment? Have judgment in your mind? You will. <laughs> if it's not there yet, you'll find it. <laughs> and it's very unsettling. The burdensome act of judgment is one Zen Master wrote. It is burdensome. And what we find ourselves doing is going, oh God, judgment again. What is that? That's more judgment. And so we continue to burn the very stick that is burning us. So that's the scope of the problem. Now what do I do about it? I see that I can't give it the same energy. I can't walk into the 21st century relating to myself in exactly the same way I have in the number of decades you've been alive. Because that's just created what I am now. It's created the same inward turmoil that I live with day after day. So I can't use that strategy. So now I'm getting frantic. (laughs) I've got to find the answer to this. I've seen the violence externally. I've seen how violence doesn't cease ethnically and racially and neighborly and all the other ways. I see that my anger only feeds the burning fuel of anger that has gone on and on. Almost genetically it's in us now, and genetics in terms of Buddhism is just conditioned tendencies hardened into form and matter. Genetic chromosomes of dispositions. Our whole human race. And yet so I have tremendous momentum to find the answer to this. The next stanza of the Dhammapada. Only through love will anger cease. Now that sounds pretty, but is it practical? Let's see what that means. If my reactions, any reactions I bring to the things that come up in my my mind, for instance, today you may have found your breath and probably many of you didn't. But if you did, and if, even if it were for one or two breaths, the mind just went off again, didn't it? And I think it's universal, regardless of how many three-month courses you've set, that that mind will take us away from time to time. Let us remember, first of all, that we are not responsible 
when the mind leaves. We are not responsible that the mind is, has left its, the breath. You are not at fault for that. Okay? Where right effort comes in is for you to be able to relinquish the thought once you have awakened to the fact that you're thinking and be willing to come back to the breath rather than to continue to entertain the much more pleasant thought. (laughs) So your willingness to do that simple thing is all that's required of you. And you'll find that you'll stay and you'll be gone again very quickly. Now how it is that you come back to the breath is as important as the fact that you do come back. Because behind the scenes there is probably some dialoguing or monologuing going on that says, what's the matter with you? Look at all the other people. They're sitting like Buddhas and I'm sitting here like a schmuck. I can't find my breath. I don't even know I breathe. I can't do this. This is awful. This is tiring. This is... You see what creeps in? That is reactivity. That are the, those are the in bred patterns that we have lived with our whole life that are coming and surfacing around a simple task of following the breath. And if we breed the continuation of that reactivity, we are in a sense breeding self-anger into ourselves even as we try to rip ourselves back to the breath with some being perturbed and impatient with ourselves. And so we are actually breeding in the cultural, culture petri dish of our lives, of our minds, that very reactivity itself. But how about this as a way to bring it back? I'm off. Oh, I've been thinking. Return. And return, I would suggest first moving to relaxation. Connecting with your sense of deep sense of physical and mental relaxation. Softening the mind. Softening the body. Before you go trying to find the breath again, connect with the body. And then let the breath emerge out of that sense of relaxation. And then you will have returned, not with a hostile attitude, but with a loving one. Because this practice from day one requires a loving attitude from you, from all of us. Anything else, and we are breeding the same conditioned pot from which we have come. The means of our practice have to be in accordance with the ends that we seek. If we think we will grow into love, we cannot use self-beratement, self-anger and hatred to get to there. We have to bring forth self-kindness, self-care, self-affection, self-concern, self-allowance, which is not self-indulgence. We have to take the step, every step we take from love. Because that's the Buddha's message. But it's more than the Buddha's message because his message was the cry of humanity. The cry of the wolf as well as the human being. And it is from that cry of ancestral terror 
of 120 million people dying in the last 50 years. It is from that cry that we bring forth the love in our hearts. This is not a small thing we do. This is a radical change in each and every one of us. Thank God for that. For I don't know the state and condition of humanity in the year 3000. But I do know that you can change yourself and I can change myself. And that is all we can do. And that will have its effect upon the human race and upon all of humankind. For when we do and focus in on love as being the main motivator for our practice, we affect all hearts. We do not do this for ourselves. We do this because we honor the very fact of our connectedness. And so we need, first and foremost, to change our strategies of life. Instead of pleasure-seeking and avoiding pain, we open to both. Because when we pleasure-seek, and pleasure comes to an end, it creates the frustration and the stew of anger, which leads to the burst of struggle and reactivity. And when we haven't learned to accommodate the unpleasant, then we will turn on the unpleasant with projection and denial and anger. And so as experiences unfold throughout our day, as we sit here and we are caught in the angst and anguish of our knee pain and our sore hips and back, let us remember that struggle only ceases through love. Let us strengthen that intention through the experience of understanding, not through some New Year's resolution, where we deeply feel and understand that to do anything else, to apply any other remedy, is 20th century fix. And we have to be in the 21st century. And so we learn that the simplicity of not doing, of just leaving ourselves alone and watching and observing, is at the very heart of what this practice calls for. In hospice care, even though the staff knows what it's getting involved in when it hires on to hospice care and treating the terminally ill, still there is a number of months in which the hospice staff in their youth and in their reactivity attempt to heal the dying and by fixing the dying, trying to make it okay. So the nurse, instead of just being by the bedside, will try to fluff the pillows. Do anything, any action, because of our own sense of frustration 
and pain with the situation. And so we have to be willing to go through that frustration and feel that pain. To be able to get a sense that these things just come and go like the wind. That they're not a condemning statement of who we are. That we're not fixed and are angry as an angry person. We're not fixed in our anger as an angry person because we experience anger. That there is nothing that can define the undefinable. That we are much more vast than a simple definition. That we are beyond the range of definition at all. And for us to come to that level of understanding and depth, that level of serenity and contentment, not from struggle, but from love, not from conflict and anger, but from care and concern. And we are therefore called upon to bring our full heart into this practice all along the way. Because, my friend, we can do nothing else when we look at the state of our human conditions. Can we sit for a minute or two? sitting now doesn't matter what we're feeling doesn't matter what our body is sensing what sensations are arising can we just meet that with an embracing awareness without self-condemnation without judgment. Because it's part of our aliveness. We want to own it. We want to take responsibility for it. We want to open to it. Because it's part of our aliveness, be it pleasant or unpleasant. And how can we be fully awake if we fracture our aliveness in any way whatsoever? so it is with complete total acceptance that I enter this moment, which is love.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.